This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider. Today we're going to talk about 91's position on net zero and the need to facilitate carbon transitions across the world that result in real reductions in carbon emissions. With me today is our Chief Executive Officer, Henrik Tatoy, our Chief Commercial Officer, John Green, and our Co-Head of Thematic Equity, Deirdre Cooper. My name is Nesmira Muller, and I'm Head of South African Investments for 91. Let's start by understanding our position on net zero. So Henrik, if I can start with you, what do we believe in relation to climate change and net zero? Nazmira, at 91, we are committed to doing our bit to get to a net zero world. For the simple reason, we have to, if we want to sustain life as we know it on this planet. But a simple uh, straight line of carbon reduction every year or reported carbon reduction is simply not going to work. And for us, it's all about the transition and helping to work towards an effective transition, but also a transition that's inclusive, inclusive of all 7.9 billion people on earth, and also not cutting out certain economies, which may be earlier on in their carbon transition than some of the more advanced economies. So why did it take us so long to sign up to net zero? Because the way you explain it makes perfect sense. But we bought a year later. At 91, we think about our commitments. We think seriously about them. We don't rush in and sign. Of course, we've been working with the people who, who, who are advocating for net zero for many, many years as a firm. Various of these initiatives that had our people as part of those initiatives that we've shared ideas, etc. But the net zero pledge is a serious pledge. And we had to think and consider how we as 91 and our portfolio companies are going to get there. I think we've now got a very, very clear framework from which to uh, uh, make our contribution to net zero. How has the fact that we come from an emerging market affected that? I think that's actually been the reason why we paused and thought because most of the carbon in, 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 you know, that has been generated by mankind has been generated by the developed market economies, particularly Europe and the US, China catching up quickly, but not the emerging markets. And the emerging markets an earlier stage of their economic or a later stage of their economic transition uh, and, they, and therefore needs to need more time. But if you then think about a sharp transition here and the potential social consequences we then have to view the net zero pledge in the context of the uh, SDGs and the wider sustainable development objectives that the, the UN and the world signed up to. And then one realizes that there the, the needs to be nuance. And that's really why we took our time to think about it and also why our emerging market routes have substantially influenced our thinking. How do we think about the difference between portfolio reduction of carbon 
versus real world reduction of carbon? Because that seems to be the biggest risk once you transition from the idea to implementation. I think that is exactly the point. And as Hendrik said at the beginning, we have always wanted to be right at the forefront of the movement to use capital to invest for a better tomorrow. And we've spent a huge amount of time over the last couple of years trying to understand exactly that difference between reducing a portfolio's carbon footprint and building a portfolio that is designed to invest in climate solutions, that is designed to invest in companies that are doing a better job at decarbonizing their own businesses. And what we found is that those things can also can often be quite different. So for example, if we took a general global equities portfolio, if we took a, a portfolio that was MSCI Acqui, and we doubled the weight in the biggest tech companies, that would actually get us a 7% reduction in emissions. So that would be broadly in line with the emissions reduction required by the Paris Agreement. But of course, that's unlikely to have much of an impact on real world emissions. Unfortunately, if we took that same MSCI benchmark and doubled our weight in emerging markets, that would lead to a 10% increase in the scope one and two emissions intensity of that portfolio. And then we take keep in mind that 90%, 90% of emissions growth is coming from emerging markets. So every year that passes, that 10% increase is going to become worse. So when we design our net zero targets, we really want to make sure that we're not sucking capital out of those countries that need it most to decarbonize and putting it into large cap tech, which is a very big investment area for us, but not one that we see as really driving the transition. So for us, our net zero targets are not really about the number. It's not about where our intensity will be in 2025, because as Hendrik said, the journey to net zero in 2050 is not linear. Not every company can reduce its emissions every year, nor would you want it to. It's about the attribution. We want to see emissions reductions targets coming from real world change. We want to see companies doing a better job at decarbonizing, not selling their emissions to other companies, not outsourcing their emissions to other parts of the world, but really pursuing activities that will lead to positive change. And we want to allocate capital within sectors and within countries to those companies that are doing their best job um, and continue to, to um, promote that virtuous circle going forward. So maybe if we go from there to talking about how corporates are thinking about this, because as we've seen a lot of pressure being brought to bear on corporates for their carbon intensity, the risk is that you get some very unintended outcomes. And John, if I can bring you in at this point, because we've been having a lot of discussion around one particular example recently. So I know this is something you feel strongly about. Yeah, I, I think this tendency to, to dispose of assets that are carbon heavy is, is something we have to really examine uh, as investors. Um, clearly, uh, in, in, in those kinds of situations, um, a specific company is going to uh, so-called reduce its own carbon intensity. But does that result in real world carbon reduction? In many instances, and in fact, in most instances, not. Uh, often it results in those carbon intensive assets um, uh, being separately operated, sometimes outside of uh, the kind of scrutiny that public markets brings to bear on those assets. 
and often uh, outside of the kind of commitments that uh, you know we would expect from uh, heavy carbon emitting companies re regarding their transition. So I think this tendency to dispose, to unbundle um, uh, carbon intensive assets is something that we need to be very cautious about and 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 really question. And uh, you, you know you pointed to a situation in South Africa right now where a meaningful a resource business is unbundling its coal assets. Uh, the question is, where do those assets go from here? And uh, I think we as managers have a real responsibility uh, when that does happen and when we do become owners of those assets uh, to engage very actively about the future of those assets, but also and equally to engage companies on this is not the solution. Uh, just uh, unbundling your carbon heavy assets is uh, the kind of impact that Deirdre was talking to. You 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 have a, effectively a portfolio reduction, but not a real world reduction in, in carbon. And as you said, the risk is those assets end up in private hands who actually run them even more carbon intensively and exacerbate the problem. Yeah. I think often a lot more irresponsibly across all sorts of dimensions, you know, carbon, transition, I think you know, if you think uh, of, of you know, the, typically the kind of environmental restoration that is required, I think labor practices, all sorts of things uh, receive a lot less uh, scrutiny when a company like that is in private hands. And so that's not the kind of outcome as investors that we should want to happen. Emerging markets are going to, are projected to reach peak carbon emissions, South Africa, China, India, over the course of the next seven to 10 years. The developed world, particularly Europe and the UK, if you take generations of 25 years, will have had three generations to reach net zero. We are looking at emerging markets achieving net zero in 25 years, which is one generation. Matt, Mira, that's exactly what we're trying to do when we assess the plans of both companies and countries. We try to assess them not just in the context of one number, and emissions intensity number, but rather in the context of their transition pathways. And those transition pathways are very different in different sectors in different countries, as you say. Emerging markets are, and this is acknowledged in the Paris Agreement, have a different um, transition pathway than developed markets because of the, the rate of GDP growth, carbon emissions and GDP are you know, more than 90% correlated. So if your economy is growing more quickly, it's just much more difficult for your emissions to decrease. You know, deindustrialization, as you've also alluded to, is what has reduced the UK's emissions. It's not necessarily a fantastic environmental policy that started in the 1970s. Um, it's rather just the change in the structure of our economy. And the same is true for sectors. We can't expect the same pace of change for a cement company with little available technologies to decarbonize cement or an airline where today we simply don't know how we're going to you know, travel across the Atlantic in a zero carbon way as we can for, for example, a, a, an electric utility in a country that has a faster transition pathway like Germany or Italy or Spain. Um, so we need to be to be forward looking. We need to be nuanced and we need to look at all these things in context. And that's the sort of hard job that we in the investment teams here are embarking on in pursuing our net zero targets. What we understand is emerging markets need to be given time to transition, but the technology has improved so fast that there's an ability to do that much faster than developed world did, which is probably not as quickly as a lot of the sloganeers would like to happen. 
So there needs to be the balance between the two. Another point to recognize on this issue is that, and, and we feel this very meaningfully ourselves as an organization, is that companies that operate in emerging markets are very largely and often completely hostage to the energy systems of those countries that they operate in. And we, we see it very clearly ourselves uh, in terms of uh, having a very significant operation in, in, in South Africa, which is a meaningful employer, which contributes to its community and society. But where our carbon intensity is almost four times that of our, our, our UK operation. And that's principally because of the energy system, the carbon intensity of the energy system in South Africa. And, and I think that as a meaningful emerging market uh, operator, I think really understand investor, understanding um, the emerging market energy system transition opportunities, starting with South Africa is something we're going to spend a lot of time on because if uh, if those energy systems can be coaxed, helped, uh, advised to transition in a sensible way, and interestingly, many emerging markets are replete with renewable resource, uh, then I think um, that as investors, we will be really adding positive action to this issue. Um, Henrik, moving from John's point, we are based in South Africa for a large portion of our business. We employ nearly half our staff in South Africa. What can we do to help the grid in that country? I think besides giving our opinions, which which we do have and we do give, it's, it's about explaining the global capital market realities uh, domestically. And that goes for South Africa, Indonesia, all the carbon intensive uh, emerging markets. That uh, to quote Jeff Sachs, if you aren't gonna show a, come up with a competing plan, capital will pass you by and the growth consequences will be enormous. Uh, so so there's, a, there's a sort of a, uh, we can argue as much as we want to about the just transition, but we also know where capital is going in the world and making that point very, very clearly and then working with our portfolio companies or in our, in, 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 in our case, uh, the governments or the regions or the utilities who borrow from us and, and, and make it very, very clear that we need the kind of thinking uh, that, that leads ultimately to a full transition of the energy system. These energy systems cannot remain there forever. And that, that message needs to be driven home very, very clearly as well. I think Hendrik has hit on exactly uh, the key point, which is John said, many of these emerging markets are replete with renewable resources, but many of them are not replete with capital. And we think about the amount of capital that needs to be invested to transition, you know, three to five trillion dollars a year. The majority of that needs to go into emerging markets. And I think, as Hendrik said, those companies need clear plans if they're going to get that capital. No one's going to allocate capital um to to companies or countries that don't have a very good idea as to how they're going to put that to work um but they also need net zero goals that are not designed to pull capital out of those companies because or countries because they're focused on very very short-term metrics and i think that's something that we really want to be a part of in helping um you know contribute capital to build that better future and also giving our ultimate um, stakeholders the ability to participate in economic growth in that region. So not take capital out that could potentially be damaging to, to long-term returns. 
I think, Nesbira, we've got to think in a systemic way because this is one of the big opportunities in the so-called low return or low yield world for capital of rich countries to find opportunities to apply that capital uh, in a sensible way to create a solution for themselves, but also excellent returns because we, there is a huge economic opportunities. It's the economic opportunity of our generation that's ahead of us. And I think rather than run for the safe corners where you overpay, is get involved in the transition because this transition is going to make the difference and enhance the economic growth potential of the places where most of the people on Earth reside. The problem is not generating more clean energy. We know we'll be able to do it and the capital markets will finance it. It's, it's generating less dirty energy and improving, go to the dirty spots, clean them up, is the, is the quick win. And we need to get there and we can't exclude them from this discussion and debate because if we do that, uh, it will take us far longer to solve the problem and we may never even solve it. How do we begin to encourage more capital to flow towards facilitating transition in emerging markets? Do you think there's a responsibility by developed market investors to actually facilitate this transition? So Naz, that's that's the hot topic. That's the hot potato. I think that's going to be sort of thrown around between now and and, and COP twenty six and and really debated at length. But I, I think many of the developed world institutions that are thinking about this know the reality, and that reality is the reality Deirdre described, which is ninety percent of the investment to to transition the world needs to happen in emerging markets. Emerging markets currently do not have the capital to deliver on that. And so you need you need a proper finance solution uh, for this. And in fact, you know, I could turn that question to you to say, you know, I know that you've been doing a lot of work on the electricity system in, in, in South Africa and the, the funding needs for a, a potential transition. Um, and, you know, to, to, to understand actually when it gets down to the real thing, uh, are global funders willing to to come to the party if a credible plan gets put together? I think as we stand today, we haven't seen enough, uh, you know, credible plans coming out of the heavy emitting emerging markets. And I think it's going to take one or two of them to take the lead and show the way here. Um, we 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 think and, and hope that South Africa could uh, could be one of those as a as, as a heavy emitter. Um, but once uh, once I think an emerging market country really shows the commitment, uh, I think that the finance will, uh, you know, the packaging will will come together because as a collective representer of of both uh, private and and government capital, um, you know, we feel the 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 urgent need is understood. As Hendrik said, the train has left the station. So it's about putting credible plans together and then it's about pursuing, you know, sensible financing opportunities. So I think as we stand today, it's 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 probably still up in the air. I, I, I can't kind of say with absolute confidence that I can see the indications that the, the finance that's required is is there. But I think there's real realization that uh, you know if if this is an issue that isn't dealt with, the emissions in emerging markets isn't addressed. Uh, that we're not going to achieve our net zero goals as a whole. So um, the communities that are charged with that, the policymakers, the public institutions and the private capital, I think has 
ultimately, uh, when it's going to matter, we'll have the will to address it. And I think this is the moment where we really need to see blended mining come to fore. So Henrik helped write a big report about it years ago, which still hasn't really gone nearly far enough. And I think climate change is the point where this needs to come to bear, because you asked me the question, how, how does this begin to apply? And the elements of transition, the private sector can easily finance. So renewable energy is something that is no longer in its infancy. It's sort of skipped the teenage hood and it's gone straight to adulthood in a, in a decade long period. And the private sector can easily finance that. But the transmission grid that needs to be strengthened in order to facilitate that, or the part where you decommission coal fired power stations earlier than the economic value suggests, are going to need much more concessional finance. And it's about finding the sources of capital for all those elements in emerging markets that I think is really important. Uh, no, I just think just on your point, sorry to, to, to interrupt you there, but on your point, private sector finance or financial institutions, investors, banks, other players along the, the, the capital structure, all need to think about engaging in some form of blended finance. It's not just the official actors. But the official actors or the governments have also realized that their key task is the safety of their citizens. If that's your key task, climate change is your key challenge. And therefore, you need to use whatever means you have financial, scientific, otherwise. And if we just take a lesson from the pandemic, how quickly could public and private mobilize resources to deal with the vaccine issue with the, you know, we've had failings. We couldn't distribute it globally but we could find the solution very quickly. So we just have to go one step further than the way the world dealt with the pandemic. And that is say, we're in it together. We can't have all the vaccines in one country and then hope to have a safe world against COVID-19. And maybe, maybe that lesson has sunk in. So getting involved in transitions means a heavy involvement in engagement, whether that's at the company level or the country level, when we're talking about South Africa or India or Indonesia, um, but that is something that active managers are in some ways just learning how to do. So how do we think about engagement in the context of net zero? And Hedrick, do you think listed asset managers are actually equipped to do this? I think the way we understand engagement in our industry is quite dangerous in a sense of just asking the same questions to management that everyone's asking them and then writing them letters, etc. I'm, I'm quite critical of the asset management industry's ability to engage properly. I think the question what we ought to be doing as investors and owners of these companies is asking them for their plans and their thoughts in the context of the scenario we sketch to them about a world where, where the movement to net zero is unstoppable. And then monitor their response and learn from them about their particular issues and then see where capital can make a difference, i.e. mobilize capital where it matters, but not apply a simple approach or a cookie cutter approach across all our investments, because then we will not uh, uh, create an optimal outcome. So we have a significant responsibility to understand the specific issues of the countries and companies we invest in, and think about those and monitor over time and give feedback and that's where engagement becomes important when we go back to them and say yes you said this but 
you know, why didn't you think about the following opportunity or why are you so different from your peer? That is the value that an, an, an owner of a public asset can, uh, can add to the management or the boards of those assets. Henrik, I think the important point there, it's about measuring the change in plan. And we talk about equities and companies, but it's the same thing for countries as well. You know, we have a very large um, business that invests in emerging market debt, and there it's about measuring the progress that these countries are making rather than their absolute level at the beginning. And just to add there, Hedrick, um, you know, I think as active managers, you know, we have um, learned over many years and spent an enormous amount of time and 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 focus, you know, building the expertise to assess to assess good business models versus average versus bad business models, uh, and ultimately to assess which companies are, are are going to do better than than the average. Um, and I think that it's incumbent on on us as active managers now to also build the capability and the skills to really understand the sustainability models, the, the, the carbon emission models of, of companies, and to really understand which of those are going to be the ones that are going to be winners. And because with this meaningful movement, there is no doubt that to, to be able to produce in a, in a more sustainable way is going to be a competitive advantage for a company. So th this is an evolving space. Um, and, you know, you need to develop that capability and so that when you do engage, you can engage with knowledge and, uh, and, and thoughtfully. We are in the game of picking winners for our, for our client portfolios or client capital and disposing of losers, but hopefully through the allocation of capital, also supporting businesses uh, when they are on the right path. We are not in the business of virtual signaling, signaling via the media and making simple or making statements that catch headlines. So this is a serious engagement is a serious activity. It's a productive activity, but it has to be conducted with knowledge and sensitivity. And Henrik, I would add it's not a quick activity, so we shouldn't be expecting short term wins on on the basis of one meeting to suddenly resolve the company's problems. It's an ongoing conversation that will play out over several years in all likelihood. So Deirdre, how do you think about data in your process and, and where do you think the biggest holes are and where do we need to make progress? I think the first thing I would say is I think our industry generally overstresses the data gap in sustainability. I think we're generally in the business of, you know, investing in the future, which means we have to deal with imperfect information all the time. Um, so I think a statement that that says, you know, we could solve all the sustainability problems in the world if only companies reported more metrics is to me a very misleading way to go about this. We try to understand sustainable companies through understanding, as Hendrik says, their long term plans, through understanding their culture. We do a, we're doing a huge amount of work at the moment um, to develop a better framework to assess companies' culture because ultimately that's what leads to true sustainability. But then, of course, you're right. You need some metrics in order to assess, you know, whether the company is actually doing what it says it is in terms of its decarbonisation plans. And the key metrics are different in different industries. So, you know, we have this challenge, as I said at the beginning, to develop one simple 
easy metric that we can use across all our strategies and our clients can easily compare across everything. Um, but that is never the perfect metric for every business. The, the, you know, the metric to understand 91's decarbonization strategy is really to look at what we're doing in our portfolios. It's important what we do in our buildings, but we can change some light bulbs to LEDs. It's not going to change the world. Um, whereas if we want to invest in semiconductor companies, we want to know what their emissions per wafer are. Their emissions per revenue for that sector can be very misleading because some companies outsource a lot and some companies don't. So we want each company to report the metrics that are important and hold themselves accountable on those metrics. But we're certainly not believers that um, data is the, the big sustainability issue. The big sustainability issue are companies setting the right plans to, be, to develop businesses that will be truly robust as we move to a more sustainable future. Henrik, what are we doing as 91? What are we doing in our own business to reduce our carbon emissions? We've organized our sustainability framework along three dimensions. Invest, that's how we invest our clients' capital. And we start off by saying we do two things. We, mo we mobilize and create a, a, a or mobilize capital for positive transition and inclusion on one hand. On the other hand, we understand and price the risks appropriately across the rest of our portfolio and encourage those companies to mitigate their carbon over time with clear transition plans. Advocate, it's think about the problem, use our substantial intellectual resources and our understanding of capital markets to share ideas, engage with other people such as Net Zero Alliance, um, various uh, groupings we work with. Uh, transition pathway initiative, etc. And then finally, inhabit. Look at the way we live, look at the way we in our company operate, and that starts with uh, individual carbon measurement, it starts with flights, uh, buildings, uh, but as John says, in the end, you are a prisoner of the economies within which you operate, and you will have a lower carbon number in the UK for, for your per head than say in a place like South Africa or, or Indonesia, unless those countries also change. But it's along those three dimensions, we're gonna measure ourselves and see how we contribute, not necessarily how much carbon we reduce per year in the next five years, but whether we have sensible plans in place to get to that ultimate goal we've signed up to. And if we focus on the invest component for a second, how are we going to set targets for our investment teams? How are we going to measure our progress in that space? We are not setting uh, carbon targets per se per portfolio. Target is, do you understand the transition risks and issues in your portfolio? Have you listened to the companies and engaged? Do they have credible plans? And are you collecting the right data, which we're busy doing? Once you, you get there, you're in a very different way, a space from say 10 years ago, and then you can assess which ones to support. Uh, and that's of course in the mainstream portfolios against normal benchmarks. If you are in Deirdre's business, uh, which is really all about financing the positive transition uh, and, 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 and positive inclusion, you find the winners in this game, you support those winners and you buy them at the right time. Your clients will do very well and actually they will help change the world. And you'll measure the impact of those decisions in a sensible way. And that's not uh, a trivial task. So maybe to sum up, let's go back 
go around the table and Dero, let's start with you. What do you think has been missed right now in this discussion and debate? So I think what we're trying to add to the discussion is really focused on the importance of understanding the sources of your carbon reduction targets. Understand where your carbon reduction is coming from, for the part of your portfolios that are looking at you know, companies that are reducing their emissions. And then in the part um, in which I sit, as Hendrik discussed, which is investing positively in solutions, which is a key element, for example, of the IIGCC's net zero plan. They want to decarbonize existing portfolios and then invest positively in solutions. We think it's vital that the need for those solutions in emerging markets is not overlooked. That's a key part of the political COP debate. That's the number one topic um, that will be discussed in Glasgow. We think it hasn't had enough attention yet in the financial part of the net zero debate. There's an understanding that you need to invest positively in solutions, but maybe not enough understanding that the majority of that capital will have to go in, into emerging markets and that 90% of the emissions growth is coming from emerging markets. And that as Hendrik alluded to, carbon is the ultimate public good. So we're not just doing this for them, we're doing this for us. It's everybody's carbon, it doesn't matter where it's emitted. So it really doesn't matter what happens in the UK unless the rest of the world comes along with it. John, if we turn to you, what do you think is being missed? Yeah, I think I think just I hope in the next six to 12 months we can get a real live example of uh, an emerging market that steps out as a leader in this space <clears throat> where we can uh, ensure that there's engaged de develop market capital that works together to to solve uh, or to at least advance meaningfully the plans to uh, decarbonize and transition. Uh, a heavy emitting emerging market uh, energy system. Uh, if if that can happen, then I think we are genuinely on a path to 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 net zero. I think everything else uh, in in most instances is going to be good talk. Um, if that if if a solution like that isn't forthcoming, um, it's going to be um, a, a big challenge to take on some of these um, net zero pledges. Really. Henrik, that brings us to you. I've only got two points, Nazmira. Time is running out. And we are all in this together. No point that some of us will do a great job and write beautiful annual reports or that, and others are not part of it. And the quicker we all get this message that this is about everyone, the quicker we will be on the path to net zero. So thank you everyone for your time. My closing words are perhaps three things. 91 is, believes in real world carbon reductions in a way that requires active engagement with companies and countries in order to understand their plans, support their plans, um, try and encourage them towards this active reduction in carbon, which brings forward the point of net zero for them, but also reduces the amount of emissions along that path. And it needs to be done in a way that the societies, these companies operate in support, because if that doesn't happen, there will be a backlash that makes it unsustainable. 